Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Guten Morgen, bonjour, bon matin. I don't know any other languages. Uh, so welcome to IRC Book Club. Yeah, Yorkshire. Welcome to IRC Book Club for this third episode. Episode number 97, Mike. Three episodes away from our 100th podcast. Br- brilliant news. Yes, uh, I know. Feels like a thousand. Some of the books we've had to read on this show. Wow. It's aged me. Off. It's aged me. Um, for this third episode and discussion of Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion by Robert B. Key, Aldini, PH.D. How are you getting on with it, Mike? Well, it's like I said every week, you know, it's hard book to read. It's written yeah. in a, well, it's not old, it's not written in old-fashioned style. It's old. It's graphic, Therefore, isn't it? Therefore, it feels it's old, uh, it feels old-fashioned. And I mean, you know, what, 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 why say something in one page when you could say it in 20 with loads of irrelevant politic, political references? But what, what his stories and references do represent is the fact that it is based on scientific fact. Yes, and you've also, I would imagine, in the chapters we're about to discuss, you now understand where the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid comes from. Well, maybe it comes from him, maybe he used it. You know, who no, knows, it's, de- it's definitely, definitely. You now understand that the Jim Jones suicide uh, cult, which we'll come to, they drank the Kool Aid and all died. That's yeah, but, where and, the and phrase comes from: that. drinking the Kool Aid. I'm not knocking that, but I'm a better off for learning that now. Are you not happy that Do you I understand about mass, um, um, about a mass suicide? No, and that's the thing about these old these books that are written in a different time era. They, they self-justify themselves a lot. Whereas you look at the way some of the books are written now, they tell you the fact, you take it as read, you move on. They do. And what's a shame is it's so useful. It's so useful, but we live in a... In a we're getting a bit on this tangent, book, but it's relevant, I think. This book is so useful. Oh, it's brilliant. It's a great book. Should you read it? Yeah, 100%. Should you buy it? Yep, definitely. It probably cost about a quid from Amazon. It's that old. Well, you'd be able to get yeah, a should used I buy one it? for yeah. 20p. Yeah, exactly. definitely. Should you buy it? Yes. So we've got two chapters to talk about today, social proof and liking. We better crack on then because they're quite long chapters. They are, but there's plenty of pages to skip because a lot of it's stories about suicide cults. Fair enough. So, chapter, so basically, the premise of the book is the different facets of of influence, essentially. Yes. And this one is about social proof. Chapter four. Now, I've got to say, when I first looked at this, I thought to myself, "Oh my god, this book was written who knows when." Um, the social world has changed so much; it's all going to be irrelevant. But no, it's all extremely relevant. Yeah. So I'm going. I'm going to pick a quote here out of page one one six. And what he's referring to as the principle of social proof, he kind of defines it. It says, the one means we use to determine what is correct to find out what other people think is correct. The principle applies especially to the way we decide what constitutes correct behaviour. We view a behaviour as more correct in a given situation to the degree that we see others performing it. 
Whether the question is what to do with an empty popcorn box in a movie theatre, how fast to drive on a certain stretch of highway, or how to eat the chicken at a dinner party, the actions of those around us will be important in defining the answer. So, uh, you know, if I could give a long pause just to allow people in their cars and or stroke walking the dog to let that sink in. I think this is monumentally important. And, and he, the first example he gives in the chapter is how TV executives use canned laughter to tell us when to laugh at a TV show. Now, actually, time has moved on and the irony of canned laughter has become the joke in and of itself on a lot of TV comedy shows because we, the Joe public, see immediately through the nonsense that is canned laughter, do we not, Michael? So you very it's rarely more, hear it's more, it's more than we've got in to, haven't we? Yeah, and it, you know, it gives other examples. Bartenders often salt their tip jars with a few dollar bills at the beginning of an evening to simulate tips left by prior customers and thereby to give the impression that tipping with folding money is proper barroom behaviour. You know, I've done it many, 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 many years ago. Um, when you busk, you do not start with an empty case. You start with change in the case to tell people that they put change in the case. It's just basic busking, but I never thought of it as actually creating social proof, but it is. Um, and what you realise is how powerful social proof has become. I mean, we, we've got now, Mike, a whole global social proof industry, if you think about it. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if you use YouTube much, but I use it a lot. It's how I make all the purchases. I bought, yeah. I've got a Garmin watch on today because I've been out running. Right. How did I choose my Garmin over my Apple iWatch? I, watch, I just literally put it on YouTube, Garmin v- and it just auto-filled. Garmin versus Apple iWatch. Loads and loads and loads and loads, loads of and reviews. loads of reviews. And I bet you watched, what, three, four, five, and made a decision? 100%, yeah. And then you're into the different types of Garmin, so you're doing Garmin Vivo Active versus Garmin Forerunner. Yeah. And is it a review or is it social proof? Well, social proof. And then, it, and then it gets even deeper if you think about, you know, you look at, I've got a teenage daughter who's still asleep in bed as we record this show. Um, she lives in a world where the word influencer is a is a is a big thing, and you, you'll see this as your girls get older. That they are these aren't just the YouTubers they follow, but people on Instagram who are constantly using specific products. They're creating social proof. And that social proof is monumental. Have you got um, the new Apple TV Plus channel, Pricey? Got it. Literally never watched it, actually. There's some great shows on it, actually. We were watching one the other night. And uh, one of the things, yeah, fair play to Apple. They're producing the content, so they get to seed the content with social proof. And I noticed, we were watching this show the other night. The guy picks up his iPhone looks at his Apple Watch and then sits down to work at his brand new 2020 uh, 16-inch MacBook Pro. And you're like, right, okay. Nice. But, but it's all that, that product placement, that is social proof. It's telling people, look at this handsome, successful guy on this TV show. And it's a very subtle message. So the question is, how do we bring that into the world of our audience? Oh, you took the word, that words out of mind. What does it mean for us? Yeah, and there's, therein lies the... Now, can I ask, can I, I'm going to ask you a quick technical question, actually, Jonathan. Go ahead, the, Michael. The bandwidth between you and I, as I listen to you, is poor. Really? 
I can hear uh, you. Is it going fine. to record okay? It seems. Is it going uh, to record okay? I believe so, yeah. Fine. We'll crack on then. Sorry, Jonathan. Carry on. Oh, we were talking about how we can apply this into our world. Um, I, I'm going to ask you some, I'm going to go into something else that I found interesting before we talk about applying it. Because I think we should talk about applying the whole chapter when we get to the end of the chapter, which is this phenomenon called pluralistic ignorance. What did you make of that? I thought that was fascinating. Go on, re- refer me back to that. So he starts with it on page uh, uh, 129. God, you're miles of pages ahead of me. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that when we come to it then. Go on then, I'm on page 129. The Chicago well, Believers. Did you read a... Yeah, uh, so did yeah you read I did. About... I did. Uh, yeah, so did you... Go on, explain it. Well, I'm trying to find... Uh, my, ah, so my, what my he's saying here. is, what he's saying is, if there's a guy lying in the street and everybody walks past the guy lying in the street, everybody will walk past the guy lying in the street. Yes, so, so if we're a group, we tend to follow the group even if it's the wrong thing to do. Even if it's yes. not something we would do on our own. I mean, I remember, Pricey, when I sold legal technology, and it, it, it comes into a couple of different parts. This, this merges into chapter two as well. There was a salesman by the name of David. Do you remember him? No. He's a bit, he's a bit of a knob, actually. But there was a salesman called David, and wherever David went, people bought kit. And everybody talked about him. What, what I found was the legal technology space was very incestuous and very social. They were bothered, very bothered about social proof, weren't they? Let's get it right. Yes. They had their degree certificates on the wall. It was all, so it, the lawyers, it was all about buying what other people had bought. So if a magic circle firm had bought Technology X, everybody else went out and bought it, even if it was shit. My dad calls it the pile of shit. So it's, it's pluralistic pile. ignorance. That's what pluralistic he's inst- talking ignorance. about. Yes. An old mate of mine who used to work in the sporting goods industry, he's a heavyweight CFO stroke management consultant now. He always used to say, I mean, this was when he worked at Mitre and he was a bit bitter selling footballs and, <laughs> foot, foot, footballs and goalkeeping gloves. Um, but he always used to say, you can stick a swoosh on a pile of shit and people will buy it. Which is incredible, isn't it? Because if you can create a big enough, um, or if you've got a good enough PR machine that says, we are great, people should buy this, people will then buy it, irrespective of whether it's the best solution or not. Correct. Yesterday I spoke to a client. Um, he gave me a brief. Hopefully he'll sign some terms and conditions today. We'll see. Different reasons. He's already got a couple of other recruiters in play and so on. But he, I said to him a key question you and I both ask customers is, why does somebody come and join you? Now, actually, they're a shit little company. Um, 11 employees. He's not got much of an employer value proposition per se. So he he swapped that employer value proposition for the referenceability of his product in what they refer to in healthcare as a digital exemplar. He went, because we've got three key digital exemplars as clients and they're using our software. 
and then he named them. Right. Da, 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 da. And that's him just saying, listen, it's social proof. I've got my social proof. Therefore, if you come here, you will win. You'll be all right because you'll be able to walk around to other customers and demonstrate your social proof. That's the whole concept of winning a digital exemplar yes. site in healthcare, isn't it? Or having a great reference site. It's that ability to say, well, actually, so-and-so use mm. our software. And that's a bit what this book's like, actually, which is we all know that getting a good reference site with a key name player is an important thing to do, but we don't necessarily understand the psychology behind it. Yeah. That's what this book talks about, actually. Absolutely. And, it, 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 and from our perspective, Mike, you know, it, it's made me think I need to get back on Need, need to get back on the trail of testimonials. And, you know, to be fair, one thing I chase often, and if you're listening right now, if you haven't given Book Club a review on iTunes, get about it, because we need our social proof to get more listeners on the show who in turn will talk about us, who in turn will turn into either candidates or clients. So do us a favour if you're listening. Um, well, I've got 130, I think. I can't remember now. Yeah, you, you really applied yourself to that for a period of time. And that's a powerful piece but, of social and I think, proof. I think that does a lot of good, yeah, without a doubt. It's a powerful piece of social proof in and of itself. You mm. cannot knock it. So he talks about all sorts of different things. He talks about um, the Jim Jones suicide cult thing, which is, and he talks about it for a long period of time. Um, well, it talks about it for pages. Oh, it goes on and, and on and on. Yeah, but it is absolutely. interesting and it is important. But you're reading it thinking, God, you're going on about this now. Tell you what's really interesting, Mike, is I, I, I've been doing a lot of work trying to suss out the new LinkedIn algorithm. Um, yeah. The new LinkedIn algorithm works as follows I put a piece of content on LinkedIn and the algorithm looks for social proof of the content being worthy to the audience. And it looks for it within a yep. specific period of time. So what the, what the algorithm is artificially intelligently doing is saying, well, actually, is this social proof here that what you're saying is worth distributing to the audience? And then the algorithm basically says, so if I put a piece of content up like the other week, I put one up, it's had 30,000 views. And within five minutes, people have waded into it. But therefore, the algorithm says, right, social proof, we like that. Therefore, people mm. like it. Therefore, push, push, push. And their view of social proof on LinkedIn, the algorithm's view is comments. It used to be likes, but it's comments now. They need to know that people want to converse with you about your content. And content that doesn't gain comments. So you, you could get a thousand likes, but it won't get that far. It won't get the thousand likes. Actually, what they're interested in is you sparking conversation and debate. Because obviously they've got sick of that sort of clickbait style content. But that's all about the social proof. Yeah, absolutely. What did you make of this thing, the Werther effect? I thought it was really interesting. It's page 145. Basically, he said that when one person kills themselves, I don't like the word committing suicide, but when one person kills themselves, then other people find it more acceptable to kill themselves. And he linked the stats, and they were unbelievable. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. Well, but that, again, is another example of social proof. Well, there was a show. His point. There was a show on Netflix a while ago, Thirteen Reasons Why. Um, right. And I, rem I remember getting an email back from the school 
saying we think this is an it, it, and it was basically a show about teenagers uh, writing reasons why other teenagers should kill themselves. How did that get on TV? Well, appalling, appalling content. And the school wrote back saying, we really, really, really don't think your kids should be watching this show. I mean, and, and this was a show aimed at 15, 16-year-olds. We got a safeguard. They're most vulnerable. Yeah, at, the, at their weakest, most impressionable, most vulnerable. We got a, an email back from the school saying, this is utterly appalling content on Netflix. Um, and it, it did make a bit of a scandal because people do follow and I think it's little things that, that it's about thinking about how people do follow socially. People commit suicide because others do it. So imagine how powerful that Correct, is yeah. in a sales context. Well, as a salesperson. This is what the guy's talking about, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote a lot about some of the big brands. Um, and I did, I did highlight this, the Werther Effects paragraph, page 146, actually. And then. Mm. Um, here you go. Homicides also. Here you go. Homicides in this country have a stimulated copycat character after highly publicized acts of violence. Heavyweight championship prize fights that receive coverage on network, TV, network evening news appear to produce measurable increases in the US homicide rate. This analysis of heavyweight championship fights between 73 and 78 is perhaps most compelling in its demonstration of the remarkably specific nature of the imitative aggression that is generated. When such a match was lost by a black fighter, the homicide rate during the following 10 days rose significantly for young black male victims, but not young white males. It's terrifying, isn't it, how, how just the media and, and social proof influences behaviour at that level of depth. And then he really okay, spends so- ages on talking about the Jim Jones mass suicide in, was it Guyana, uh, Guyana where they all, I think 800-odd of them killed themselves. Um, After drinking what, some weird, yeah. they drank. They drank the Kool Aid, Mike. Uh, yeah, yeah. But what's inter- What's what's good about this book is though, it's all scientifically backed up. There's evidence. It's all got evidence, um, mm-hmm. and that's what's really incredible about it. You know how people speed on the on the motorway, so some people drive faster. So let, I'm at the end of the chapter here. What well, are our well, he's right. You're on about the motorway. You know, if you're ever in the traffic and people start moving lanes from one lane to another, you just sort of follow them. <laughs> you do, don't you? And you think, and that's his point. Do you know what, the, one that gets, the one that gets me, Pricey, on the motorway is you're in the 50 zone on the M1. So, hey, you know, I've got the gadgets, haven't I? So I set autopilot in the 50 zone on the M1 and I just chill. Sit in my lane. I set mine at 55, me. I always think you can get away with that. Plus 10%. So I set my autopilot yeah, yeah. at 50, but there's always someone, someone. Can you hear me there, Mike? Yeah, yeah, it just there's, broke just, a bit. There was a little bleak. There's always someone who races past at 70 miles an hour. And you think, you what, think what do they, you know? What do they know? What do you know that I don't? And then other people follow. Yeah. But the point about social proof is, is that people like copying each other, is his point, and often without any real reason. Yeah, people aren't interested. Well, it's the click-work concept of it's easier to follow some social proof than it is to have to make a decision alone. Yes, then it is to have to interrogate the facts yourself. Yeah. So actually, you know, what's the, what, what, what's the takeaway? You know what the takeaway is, and it, you know, it, 
it's what good companies do. They market themselves well and they use social proof as part of it. You know, you look yeah. at all of these sports people that get to wear, you know, product brands that are sponsored. You know, Mo Farah, I'm sure, is sponsored by a running watch of some kind. Inevitably. Running watch, running shoes, running shorts. Why? Because Mo, we all be want like to be, Mo Farah. be like Mo. You know, golf season's exactly. starting, isn't it? We're going to get a bit of Rory McIlroy at the weekend on the Roger Nelly. Um, I want to hit the same sticks as, Rod, as Rory McIlroy, even if they are blades that I can't hit. <laughs> exactly. I don't get a single set of pro blades. They're oh my tiny. God. We tiny little things. Yeah. Tiny little things. So then the next chapter is liking, which again was a, a really fascinating one, wasn't it? Um, and I think it's brilliant. He talks on the first page about the Tupperware party. Yeah. You know... Go on, explain. And, you know, the, the, well, it, it talks about the basic concept of, and again, you know, why, why use uh, one page when you can use 19? Um, but, you know, I invite you to my Tupperware party. You like me. There's some social proof in the room, so you've left buying loads of Tupperware, even yeah. if you didn't want it. Yeah, and he's, you don't and want- then he interviews a woman who says, I just don't like getting invited, because if I get invited, then I have to go, then I buy it. Yeah, it's intimidating. I know Gillian didn't. My missus never goes to those things because she knows she'll go and buy stuff. And then this is where it gets really interesting. The first, he breaks liking into a number of subsections. And like massively influences us. So the first one is physical attractiveness. And I'm just going to quote him here. Recent findings indicate... I I put, sorry, I put a quote of this on LinkedIn. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. It says, recent findings indicate that we may have sorely underestimated the size and reach of that advantage. There seems to be a click-were response to attractive people. Like all click-were reactions, it happens automatically without forethought. The response itself falls into a category that social scientists call halo effects. Halo effects occurs when one positive characteristic of a person dominates the way that person is viewed by others. And the evidence is now clear. Physical attractiveness is often such a characteristic. And he actually mentions hiring he says, a similar effect has been found in hiring situations. In one study, good grooming of applicants in a simulated employment interview accounted for more favourable hiring decisions than did job qualifications. This, even though the interviewers claimed that appearance played a small role in their choices. So true, Mike. 100%. Let's get it right. Good-looking candidates do better than average-looking but equal in skill counterparts. A... I'll tell you now, a good-looking candidate will often beat an average-looking but more skillful counterpart. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. Without a doubt. Often in an interview process. And, 100% the case. And that is fact. But then equally, it's about thinking, well, hold on a minute. If I'm, a sale, if I'm listening to this show now, I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm not the most best-looking of people. I'm not. You're not. Well, speak for yourself, JG. Um, but if I'm listening to the show now, you're thinking, is it worth just doing a little audit of my appearance? Because I'll tell well, you what, you've got- it, it, it really does matter. It matters hugely, yes. It's one of, but, but it's one of the component parts, isn't it? Because if we look at the next subject heading, which is similarity. Yeah. And let's again, say you've got a company... Let's say you've got a company full of ugly people yeah. and you send a good-looking person for an interview. What will Are they going to hire them? Well, the no. ugly people like the good-looking people. Now, I, I said something 
to somebody and he said, Mike, you just cannot put that on LinkedIn. You'll definitely get sued. But I was going to mention and specifically name one of the big software companies and said they only employ young, good-looking white people. Oh, we see that a lot, Mike. From middle-class backgrounds. We see that an yes. awful lot. Get, yes. Went to Search and Search King Henry's School, uh, then went to one of the top seven universities, had a gap year in Southeast Asia helping out famine victims. Uh, remember, I'm now 28. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember QAS, Mike? Yeah. They used to employ degree-educated, good-looking people. But you had to be degree-educated. Uh, and it, it sounds terrible, this, but I can tell you now, they recruited white, male, middle class. Middle class. Upper second class or first class honours graduates from Russell Group Universities. Why? Because they sold to white, male, middle class, upper second class or first class honours degree graduate clients. And they knew their audience and they Correct. hired people who were like their customers. And that's reality. Well, let's get it right, Johnny. That's not you or I... <laughs> Being discriminatory, that's just how it rolled. And well, it, well, well if it's, it, it's yeah, sorry, go on. in sales, it, it's how it works. You know, how often do we see it where we get uh, an un, we get what we, in recruitment we get what we call two job briefs. There's the job brief that comes out from HR, and then there's the job brief that comes out from the hiring manager, depending on how well the hiring manager knows you and how comfortable they feel in your company and how confidential they can keep the conversation. So sometimes you'll get jobs, for example, selling to HR teams. Oh, yeah. that's the one I was going to give you as an example. What's the, what's the unwritten brief, Mike? Good-looking man. Good-looking white male. Well, well no, actually, they're, they're not so bothered about ethnicity, just good-looking. Good-looking man. Yeah, they're not so bothered. 100%. We don't, we don't get an, an ethnic... Uh, bent in any no, way no. or form with those uh, ones. What, what about this one, Johnny, then? I want somebody to sell uh, to CFOs. Oh, I think I'll have um, a slightly dull, uh, somebody who's educated in some way in accounting sell to those guys. Oh, really? Correct. Oh, I've, no, got, I've not... got one here that's selling to, to, I've got one here that's selling to uh, warehouse distribution centres. Oh, you want to tie a lady, did you? That's right, Mike. A sa- what, what do you, what's the real job brief? I want a sassy young girl. Brass, you get adject, uh, selling, selling to warehouse managers. Adjectives like sassy and brassy. You get. That's, no, actually, that's, that's, that's because of it, attractiveness. That's because that goes back into the attractiveness rather than the likability element or the similarity element. Similarity. So often, but, I, but I think with CFOs, CFOs, it's about oh, similarity. How often do we meet salespeople who are like their audience? Very much all so. the time. There's nothing wrong with that. That's smart. Yes, it is. And then equally, I'm not, it, it, and, it, and the customers do buy off them. But equally, obviously, you know, I, I have a real thing about this in healthcare. Um, interestingly, a customer said to me yesterday, a prospect, we don't hire salespeople here because the NHS don't like salespeople. Um, so uh, we just do all the sales ourselves as consultants. And I thought, eh. And you and I have talked a lot about this on different social media about how in the NHS salespeople go native and they become too much like the customer. Too empathic. Yes. So what about too the, close. what about his next part of liking and compliments? <sighs> what do you reckon? We are phenomenal I think that's suckers old for flattery. You say that, I'll tell you something, Pricey. 
Um, I walked into the yoga studio before the lockdown one afternoon and I had a polo neck on and I looked pretty neat, just been to the hairdressers. And this yoga teacher turned around to me and went, tell you what, Johnny, you look really good today. And do you know what? I was oh, really? And was she, um, and did she have good physical attractiveness? She banged tidy. But, um, so she had not... good physical attractiveness and she paid you a compliment. And do you know what? I'm weak and I'm and 48. And similarity. I'm, yeah, I'm weak, I'm 48, I'm middle-aged, uh, and a young, attractive woman gave me a compliment. But I was 10 foot tall from it. Well, great. Sound a bit different to that. I'd just go, yeah, whatever. You're trying to sell what, me some what stuff. Are you what are you selling? Selling? Yeah, exactly. But, but I mean, everybody buys in different ways, don't they? Yeah. So, I but don't I, know. I, there is, a, there is a, a, a guy, he probably listens to this actually, and probably never go phone me again. Every time he phones me, he goes, hey, mate, how's it going? I've been looking at you on LinkedIn. Brilliant stuff you're putting out there. You're looking good as well. Have, have you been training? He just says stuff like that to me. And I feel like saying, oh, shut up. Actually, can you sell anything? But I think that's how he must sell. That's and irrespective of whether I like him or not, irrespective of whether I like him or not, he's got a stable track record. So it obviously works for him. That's his way he rings his customers. Hey, you look good. You're looking well. Yes. How are you? It must work for him. I mean, I, I personally hate it, but it must work for him. Yeah, it's not at all congruent with you. I'm trying to no, think if somebody... It. Yeah, I think you could... I, I'm weak. You can probably sell to me with a bit of flattery. Yeah, not me. But uh, like I say, everybody's different. You know, this is a, you know, sort of one-size-fits-all study because there's obviously different parts make up the study. And do compliments work? Well, obviously they do. Absolutely. And then he talks about contact and cooperation. Yeah, I didn't take any notes on this bit. No, I found, I found that monumentally boring and didn't take any notes either. Funny, Mike. We're similar animals, are we? <laughs> That's <laughs> funny, isn't it? I, just, I looked at it and thought, I hope Johnny's taking some notes. No. No, we've both just skipped the section. And then he talks about conditioning uh, and, and association. Uh, 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 now, this is really interesting. Page 191. He goes... Uh, and, he, and he talks about advertisers uh, and how we respond to different products in different ways and we respond to attractive models merely associated with it. In one study, men who saw a new car ad that included a seductive young woman rated the car as faster. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Uh, it, that, that's what life's like, isn't it? That's you you know, my, my wife at the minute, because we're... My wife at the minute, because we're in lockdown, she's, she's doing a lot of TV workouts. So she's, she's at the minute following this guy, Mark Wright. You know, he's a bit of a celeb. Seems like a nice fella, in fairness to him. I wouldn't and know. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, you know, if you looked at him, you know, I'm sure Mrs. G would probably think he was a, a clever soul. A bit of all right. Yeah, yeah. And then halfway through the workout, he goes, oh, I'm getting a bit hot. I'm going to take the top off. This proper London geezer. And he goes, there goes the Matalan top. And he was obviously sponsored by Matalan. I guarantee my wife will have looked at the Matalan website now to look at clothes because he is associated with Matalan. No doubt about it. Yeah. And, and you've, there's so much anchoring going on there. At a very yeah, yeah. simple, but at the same time, very deep level. Bit of sexual attraction, mm -hmm. good-looking man. My heart's racing anyway because I'm doing my workout. Yes. It's powerful selling, isn't yeah, it? That's absolutely. And then at the moment Brilliant. of my heart doing a hundred oh, and it's social. A oh, and it's social. Yeah, yeah, and it's social proof because loads of other ladies are liking his video. 
Yeah. Who are probably, you know, middle-aged women. I've got my heart <laughs> racing at 140 beats a minute. I'm covered in sweat. Good-looking guy on the TV. Takes his shirt off. I think, whoa, look at that. And then at that point, he just, he just throws the word Matala. Boom. You can see why yeah. companies pay big money so, for that. Well, who knows how much he gets paid, but he gets paid to do it, and I'm sure he produces a return. Bound to, isn't he? Oh, companies pay big money to influencers, don't they? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They, they pay big money to influencers. Why? Because they influence us to buying. That It's as simple so, as that. So me. I've actually put your... I've actually put your name on page 198, Jonathan. Why is that? Because it makes reference to sport. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Because I've got a couple of okay, other bits. I've got a couple of other bits to talk about. Um, okay. So it's little things like uh, that I thought were interesting. We've done the men as, as faster products, linking of celebrities to products we've talked about. Um, you know, during the days of the first American moonshot, everything from breakfast drink to deodorant was sold with allusions to the US space program. People like things in car ads that re- reference Formula One, don't they? Using Formula One technology. Let's be 100%, let's be 100% clear, you know, right now as we film this on whatever day it is, the 12th of May, a lot of the adverts are, I can't remember which it was, it was a bang. Bank. Their advert was only about NHS heroes. It, ha- right. it didn't mention their banking services at all, at all, in any way. Right until the end, where you just see a logo. And I thought it was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And then they start talking about like, and there's a couple of bits here in terms of you know we've talked about social media and how powerful that is. And then he starts talking about sports teams. But for me, the whole concept of liking. Uh, you and I have talked about this article, and I don't know if you've read it subsequent to us talking about it, Pricey. There's an article written by a guy called Kevin Kelly, 1,000 True Fans. No, I've not read it. It's a facet. It, it's possibly one of the most widely read articles ever written on the internet. Um, and what Kevin Kelly basically says is you can find 1,000 true fanatical fans of whatever it is that you're involved in, you'll earn a living for life. You'll always earn a living. He said, you only need a thousand fans to earn a living in any walk of life. So if you're a musician and you've got 1,000 proper fans who will buy whatever you're selling at any given point in time, you're good. You'll always earn a living. Um, And that whole concept of liking, I think, is all about creating those true fans. And then he segues it into things like sport and football clubs and so on. Um, and he talks about uh, uh, how that works in terms of fanaticism. One of the things I always remember is, it, it, and he just talks about fanaticism rather than just liking. I was talking to my daughter the other day, and she was telling me that if you went out on a date with a boy and he was using an Android phone, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go back out with him. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. That's how powerful the Apple brand has become. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And she said, literally, no girl in her right mind would go out with a boy with an Android phone. Well, who would have thought that? It's bonkers, isn't it? Incredible. Yeah. And then you look at it, and I always always used to look at 
SAP was the one for me where it was almost like a cult when they were in their heyday. I always looked at it and thought, I wonder how many of those procurements are because actually it's the right technology for the problem and how much of it is because actually it's just become a cult that people are following. And you can see Well, it's the why. old phrase, isn't it? You know, no one got sacked for buying it. It's bigger than just this chapter, though. You can see why when people walk through our door and they say to us, listen, I want to work for a big-name vendor, you can see why. Yeah, of course can, yeah. They don't know why. No. But actually, it's anyway, because got, they, we need, they we want need to get back to We need to get back to liking. And then, you're the gonna, thing about this. then you were going to tell me about how weak I am for being a, a rugby league fan, weren't you? No, I was going to say how blind liking the team makes you against whether they're any good or not. How blind liking the team makes you against whether they're any good or not. It, it's not so much whether they're any good or not. In fact, actually, most people, the point he makes is how vitriolic people can be when a team isn't great towards a manager or a coach or a player. We know when we're watching shit, but we don't accept it. Because what he says is mm. the team becomes a part of you and is rep- and often the point he's making is people with low self-worth, the team represents you. And you see that. I mean, I'm a rugby league fan and I think it's possibly, in many respects, football fans will say I'm talking shit, uh, but in many respects in rugby league, we're a northern sport in poor communities. So, you know, if you look at one of the reasons the government have just bailed the sport out is because it's a poor sport in poor communities. Towns like St. Helens, Castleford, Warrington, these aren't wealthy places. They are, and the central fulcrum of those towns is the club. But often you see it when you go to away games, how important it is to the people of the town to win, particularly when they play people from the big city because they deem as rich. So it becomes... By and large, isn't an unfair thing to say. Yes. They, I they think Leeds per capita's probably got more money than, yeah. you know, other. So everybody despises Leeds. They hate us. Why? Because well, we're you've the got big team. We all hate Leeds. Yeah. We're the big team from the big city with our big shiny stadium in our big trendy area of Leeds. Um, and we turn up. Well, it's in Headingley. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, Imagine, you know, some of those areas pitching up in Headingley, you know, where the students are driving BMWs. Yeah. And so they, they turn up, and when we turn up, it's more than just two league points beating Leeds. It means so much more than that. Because actually it's about their tribe from their little mine, from their little town that was a mining town that was decimated by the miners' strike, that never financially and economically recovered, vanquishing the rich dickheads from the rich town. And that's, what he's, saying, it, it, that's talk- what he's saying in terms of like, he's saying it's the depth of tribalism that we get with certain brands, products, procurements that runs monumentally deep. And that actually becomes part of the person's self. I think it's interesting when we get into page 200, 201, 202, 203, and he talks about... Um, the stage mothers, and he talks about people who drop names, and he talks about the women who are groupies with... Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I never, ever, 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 ever do in any ways drop names when I'm talking to other people. 
And I didn't no, know when I should much. start doing it. I, I literally never do it. Feels uncomfortable. Even though, though often, yeah, even though often I know loads of people that that person knew. And I know that if I could drop, I know that if I dropped it in, it would provide me with social proof and it would make the client like me a little bit more. It would make my job a little bit easier. But I have this moral sense of justice that says, no, my relationship with that other person is confidential to me and them. And I never, ever do it, actually. Well, it's I have a, wondered whether I should start complex, doing it a little bit more. A bit more complex for us as recruiters, isn't it? Yeah, why do you know them? <laughs> How do you know him? Uh, 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 I talked uh, to him uh, 13 years ago. Because yeah, he rang me two days ago <laughs> to tell me how shit his job is. Correct. But I'll tell you what, there's plenty of recruiters. One that used to work for us, his number one strategy is name dropping. Yeah, the ginger one. Yeah, number one strategy, that for him. Now, actually, he ironically dropped names of people that actually he didn't that weren't clients. <laughs> He just dropped names. Yeah, I get on really well with this guy, Jeff Bezos. Dave Smith. Yeah, me and Jeff. Dave Smith. <laughs> me, and Jeff, me and Jeff Bezos, always been friends. And actually what he really meant is, yeah, I buy my stuff from Amazon. <laughs> I find it so, a bit cringy name dropping. Yes, but the book says it's the right thing to do. Or sleep with your clients, obviously. But I think that's a touch extreme. A, a bit name dropping. And, there's the, and then the, what was the other example he uses? Name dropping and... Stage mothers. Stage mothers, he says. What that live their lives through their kids. I've got one of them. Vicariously through their kids. See a lot of that at, at the sports clubs that go to, you know, jiu-jitsu and taekwondo and all that kind of stuff. A lot of that happens there. Oh, yeah. My mate Rhino Pete runs the academy at Bradford City. And uh, he said it's just a month. He said he doesn't understand it. He said, you can't just let them enjoy their football. Um, but I keep he said, saying to my kids, people are saying, living their not- dreams through their kids. Yeah, I keep saying to my kids, do not do martial arts because I do it. Do not do martial arts because I do it. But there's plenty of parents, I think, that are the other way around. Yeah, of course there is. Of course there is. And what are the implications of that for our audience then? If I'm a salesman, what does that mean? I'm selling a car right now. See what what this chapter means, if you're a salesman or woman. It means, A, be better looking somehow. Yeah. So I think a lot of that is... Now, yeah, obviously, unless you have plastic surgery, you can't change yourself. But actually being in good physical condition, not stinking of tabs, you know, wearing clothes that are clean and pressed. And I say clothes that are clean and pressed. Very often, Johnny, I meet candidates who are wearing suits that look like they have washed them in a washing machine rather than taking to get pressed. Shiny, shiny. But that, but if you said to me, what's the implication for the people that haven't read this book that want to get takeouts? It is dress correctly. It is, don't stink of tabs all the time. It is, have some similarity with your end user audience. And actually, according to Robert B. Cialdini, PhD, it is name drop. Yeah. That's what this chapter says, actually. That's what it says. It's a fascinating one. I'm gl- I, 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 I said when we started three weeks ago with this, it wouldn't surprise me if we canned it and moved straight onto another book, but I'm bang into it now. Other than the fact that it takes ages to read a chapter that could have been written in 20 pages when it's 60. Yeah, it takes ages to read a chapter. I've actually reached out to Robert B. Cialdini. Have you? On LinkedIn, yeah. He didn't go back to me. Have his people not responded? I don't know. I didn't get into all that. I just dropped him an email. (laughs) What, asking him if he wanted to come on the show? Well, I put a picture of me next to the book like that. There's probably, you know... 
better ways of doing it, but yeah. So fascinating stuff. Next week, what are we on? I think we're finishing it next week, aren't we, Mike? Last two chapters, yeah. Which are let's have a look. The last two chapters: authority, directed deference, and scarcity. Hmm. Scarcity is going to be a good one. Tony Robbins talks about that a lot. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, it's a bit like, I'm sure we'll get into talking about Willy Wonka's golden ticket, won't we? All, all of that stuff. Yes. So thank you very much for listening, everybody. That's Remember. What are you going to say? I was Michael? talking over there. I was going to say, I've finished. I was going to say, you know, when I leave somebody's house, they don't say bye, I just walk out. So I was going to pretty much doing the same now. You, you do that when you're on the piss, you just go home. Without saying, I know, yeah. you just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back. <laughs> right. We had a Zoom call, but me and my mates at the weekend, we're all getting quite drunk, been on the call. I just cut it and left. Yeah. And they all sent me an instant message saying, what, have you gone? Yeah. Uh, uh, I've got a mate who does it called Jim, and it's now become a verb. We refer to it as doing a gym. <laughs> Funny. So... Right, well, anyway, thank you, listeners. Have a great week, and we will see you next week for episode 98. Oh, and leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't. Goodbye. <laughs>